So my name's Glenn, uh, Glenn Barnes. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist and thrilled to uh, be with you um, as today we are in week four of a study through the book of Acts. So we've been working our way through the start of the early church as described in the book of Acts. And today we're actually going to finish chapter four where we finished last week. Um, and Lord willing, we are going to get all the way into uh, chapter six. So we actually have a lot of ground um, to cover today. Hopefully we'll be all be able to stick together on that. Um, because I also think that this is just a really important kind of section of the book of Acts in understanding how kind of the overall story fits together and kind of the flow of the book of Acts. Also, I think this is an important message really for every Christian in any age, but especially in the age that we live in today, because today's message is all about facing opposition. How do we handle it when we face opposition? And what we're going to see is really for the first time this early group of Christians that are filled with the Holy Spirit, that are following after Jesus, are really going to begin to face some problems and some challenges. They're going to face some opposition. And so um, it should really be no surprise to us that those early Christians face opposition and face problems. It should also be no surprise for us when we, as followers of Jesus, face opposition and struggles in this world. Um, Unfortunately, most American Christians, including this guy right here, are kind of a Con, uh, conditioned against uh, dealing with problems and opposition. You know, for me, it's like the first sign of any sort of problem. And it's like, Lord, why me? Or, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? And, 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 and so we kind of have this view. But the reality is, is Jesus could not have been more clear when he said to his disciples and he says to us in John chapter 16, he says, in this world, you will have trouble right? Period. In this world, you're going to face hard times. But he says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Now, you don't see that verse on a t-shirt very often. You don't see it on a coffee cup very often, but really it should be. In this world, we're going to face problems, uh, but Jesus says we can overcome those things with him. So Peter, who was one of the disciples and heard Jesus say that original uh, saying, also experienced that clearly in his life, including in the book of Acts. And so Peter, later on when he writes a letter, he says, it like this. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, he says, you know, opposition is normal difficulties. The fiery ordeal is to be expected. In fact, if in our Christian life we're not experiencing some of that opposition, we might want to ask the question why. Because the truth is we have an enemy who who wants to work against the good things of God in our life. So where God is at work, we're going to see the enemy pushing back against that. In fact, in 1 Peter, just a, a few verses after what I just read, he says it like this, this great kind of theme verse for the morning. It says, be alert, and of sober mind. You guys got to keep your head on a swivel. You got to be ready because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So resist him standing firm in the faith. And as I think about these, you know, this promises that we're going to face problems, that we're going to face uh, struggles, I was reminded of uh, the time I was, was shopping for a, a new sofa. And so I went to the furniture store and the guy at the furniture store said, hey, you might like this one because this sofa should fit, fit five people without any problems. And I almost bought it, but then it occurred to me that I don't know five people without any problems. (laughs) Thanks for laughing. Appreciate it. (laughs) 
I'm going to see my daughters in San Diego later today, and so I needed to sharpen up my dad joke game. And they're not going to appreciate it, but thanks for laughing. So, hey, as you think about that, let's dig into this. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, and uh, let's pick up where we left off last week. Uh, if you were here or you were watching online, uh, you'll remember that we saw that Peter and John do the first real miracle in the book of Acts, where there is this man who was begging at the, the temple gate, and for years he'd been begging, and Peter and John heal him. And people are blown away by this. It says that people actually run to see what's happening. And this big crowd gathers to see this guy that's been healed. Peter looks at the crowd and he says, hey, this is a great time for a sermon. He preaches this message that's all about Jesus, very Jesus-focused. In fact, kind of at the heart of his message is this idea, that salvation comes from no other name except by Jesus Christ. All those other things that you're chasing after, all those other things that you think are going to bring salvation and satisfaction in life, none of them compare to the name of Jesus. And so Peter preaches this message. They see the miracle, and it says literally thousands of people believe and are added to the church um, on that day. Now, of course, the religious leaders who are not a part of this thing look at all of this, and they are furious. They're furious to see uh, all these people converting to what is eventually going to be called Christianity. And so these religious leaders, they're not sure what to do with it because the crowd's so excited about it. So it says they come down, they seize Peter and John, and they put them in prison for the night. Well, they only hold them overnight, but then the next morning they take them out, and before they let them go, they give them a very stern talking to. And they say, hey, we're going to let you go, but you got to stop talking about Jesus, right? Quit with all the Jesus stuff, and off you go on your way. Well, Peter and John, no surprise, they actually go back to their, their posse, their little group of, of believers, and um, we see that they respond not with fear to those threats, and even from their night in jail, but they respond actually in prayer. And it's beautiful because we have the exact words of what their prayer was after they'd been in jail the night before. Now, I think for a lot of us, we would face some sort of struggle or persecution like that. And our prayer would be like, oh, Lord, keep us out of jail. Oh, Lord, keep us safe. Oh, Lord, you know, strike down our enemies, all those kind of things. That's not the direction they go. In fact, they pray this beautiful prayer. It's so good. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. And can we just read their prayer together? This is what we read in Act 4. 29 and 30. Let's read it all together. They pray like this. Now, Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And we read that, and I just love it because it's not self-focused, right? It's not even about them and their problems. It's kingdom-focused and about God. How I, however, as we read that, and even as you say those words, I imagine there's some of you who, who read about those signs and wonders and start to get a little nervous about that because you're like, wait a second, I didn't sign up for that kind of church. What, what are we talking about here? But here's what I want you to know about signs and wonders, and we're going to see this at other times too. Signs and wonders are specifically given to be a sign to the power of Jesus. They're not meant to freak people out. They're not meant for our own self-satisfaction. They are meant to be a sign of the power and the greatness of Jesus. So there are all kinds of things that can be signs to him. Uh, oftentimes we will see in the book of Acts that they come in the form of, of miracles or even healings. But for me, I just love to see the way that God answers this specific prayer. You may be surprised the way he does it. It might look different 
different than the way you think. Um, so they pray this prayer, God, pour out your hand, or open, stretch out your hand to perform signs and wonders. And this is what we read happens next. We're in verse 31 of chapter four, and it says this. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. That's the answer, first answer to the prayer. Verse 32, and all the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And so God answers this prayer, not with some, you know, big outward thing that we would call a sign and wonder, but through the radical generosity and fellowship of these early Christians. And that, you guys, was a huge sign to the watching world around them. Because the world is watching and looking at this new group of Christians, and they see suddenly these people doing this radical thing. They're, they're, they're not holding on to their stuff. They believe so much in who this Jesus is that they're starting to even view their possessions differently, right? They, they view their stuff with, with a, a, a new framework. And, and they're even selling their houses on occasion and land, and they're, they're giving the money to the needs of the people and to the needs of the church, and talk about your miracle, right? Talk about signs and wonders. Um, but the reality is, 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 is that the generosity of God's people is something that happens when God is at work. When God gets a hold of our hearts, one of the things that happens is we begin to be generous with what we have. In fact, you might want to write this down. The gospel caused them to loosen their grip on their possessions, but to tighten their grip on each other. So they loosened their grip on what they own so that they could tighten their group on their love for one another. And that's how Jesus lived. And now that's how the disciples and the early church is starting to do it as well. And this to me is just one of those powerful places that we see this church behaving differently, right? This group just looks differently differently from everybody around them. And it is so attractive. It is so beautiful, right? Um, and and uh, it really uh, speaks to uh, the, the, the power of God. In fact, I was thinking a little bit about this and how generosity can, can kind of be attractive to people. And, and I remember a conversation I had with a, a guy a while back. He was not a, a, a Christian, um, but he had, I think he'd been to an event here at church and he couldn't quite figure out the whole thing. He's like the, he's looking at the building and he thought the building was so nice and the people. And so he's like trying to figure all this out. And so he says to me about the building, he's like, so how'd you guys get that thing? He's like, did you guys get a government? grant for that? And I said, no, we didn't get a government grant. That's not how it works. Um, I said, no, it actually, the building was built through, um, through the, the just generous sacrificial gifts of, of people in the church. Cause he was asking, how do you, how do you build something like this just on donations? And he said, well, he said, well, do you guys have some corporate sponsors? And I'm like, you mean like the Pepsi worship center or 
like the Doritos youth room? I said, we'll consider it. No, I said, no, we don't have anything like that. He said, well, maybe you just have like super wealthy donors. And I said, yeah, not, not really. What you have is a group of people that believe in, in, in what, uh, what, what we're doing here and what it's all about. And, and so they just sacrificially give, not just to build the building, but to sustain it. And not just for ourselves, but to give it away to others. And he thought about that for a minute. And this is what he said about you guys. He said, you know what? Those people must really believe that Jesus stuff. And I said, absolutely, they do. And it actually opened up the door for a great conversation about why that is. And that should be true. Generosity is, is going to stand out as different in this world. And so that's what we see with this early church. Now, in Acts chapter 5, the passage that we um, uh, just read there, we see with this idea that people sell their stuff or give away their stuffs for the needs of others. A-, a lot of times people have looked at this and they said, see, I told you Jesus was a socialist or Jesus was a-, a communist because that's the idea. They take their stuff so that everybody's need would be met. But I've actually heard it explained like this and it makes a lot of sense to me. See if it works for you as well. This was not communism, but rather it was common communism. Communism. And the difference is this. Communism is enforced, right? The state says, I'm taking your stuff. Communism is voluntary. So communism says, what's yours is mine, and I will take it by force if that's what I need to do. Communism is completely different. It says, what's mine is yours, and I give it to you voluntarily by choice. And this is the picture of love and generosity that literally people have looked at for 2,000 years and say, they, I want to be a part of something like that. Uh, how do I get a part to be a part of a fellowship like that where they love and care for one another in such a way? But here's the thing we know to be true. When God is at work, the devil is going to attack it and oppose it. In fact, my favorite commentary in the book of Acts by John Stott, he calls this section that we're just about to get into the, the satanic counterattack. So all these good things have been happening in these first five, chapters, first five chapters, and now we're going to see the satanic counterattack. Because the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion and would love to destroy what God is doing in that church then and even in a church like ours um, still today. So the devil does this by bringing opposition in three different ways that we're going to look at. Uh, some from within the church themselves through moral failures. Some from within the church through potential for division and distraction from their mission. And then also opposition that actually comes from outside the church um, through persecution. So we're going to walk through all of these over these next uh, chapter and a half or so. So let's jump into this. First of all, we see that opposition comes from within the own, their own church through moral failure. There's some real moral failure, specifically as it relates to greed and pride and dishonesty. So verse, four, verse 36 of chapter 4 says this, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. So to understand what comes next, you need to understand a little bit about literally my favorite character in the book of Acts, this guy uh, by the name of Barnabas. His actual name is, is Joseph, but they give him this nickname. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in the New Testament, there's a lot of nicknames. And so it can feel a little confusing, but Jesus does this, right? Pe- Jesus says, you know, your name's Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter because you could be like a rock. Or he says, you know, you're James and John, but I'm going to call you sons of thunder. And so this is one of those places where his given name was Joseph, but they give him the name. 
Barnabas, which means you are an encourager. You are a son of encouragement. And this Barnabas plays a huge role in in kind of the book of Acts from here forward. Um, For one, we see that this is the same Barnabas in a few chapters we're going to see that is the first guy to welcome Saul after his conversion. So Saul, who's like a terrorist persecuting the Christians, becomes a Christian, and all the other people are like, "Uh, you know, that's great, but I don't want him in my small group. And Barnabas is like, I'll I'll take him. I'll vouch for this guy. He's an encourager, and he welcomes him in and and literally changes history because of that. Uh, Barnabas is the guy who helps diversify the church. He's one of the first people to pastor a a, a church that's that's made up of primarily Gentile believers. And a lot of people are like, I don't know about that. But Barnabas says, no, we got to lean in to what God is doing. And, And he leads the diversification of the church. Barnabas also has a compassionate heart. He raises money when there's a famine in Jerusalem. He raises money from all the churches around the Roman Empire and sends it back to make sure that the the poor that are in Jerusalem are cared for. Barnabas is the missionary partner for Paul. So when Paul gets ready to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, he asks Barnabas. Barnabas says, yes, I will go with you. They're missionary partners. But there comes a time when Barnabas actually has to stand up to Paul specifically to defend John Mark. And so John Mark has fears and, and abandons Paul. And Paul's really harsh with him. And Barnabas says, hey, let's give John Mark a chance. And so you see that encouragement back and forth. But here what we see is that Barnabas is the lead encourager, and he's willing to even sell some of his property and give the money to the apostles. And so with the model of Barnabas in mind and that kind of generosity in mind, let's look at chapter 5. It says, now there was a man named Ananias. Together with his wife, Sapphira, they also sold a piece of property. Same story, same start of the story with Barnabas. Two, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? So one of the main themes we've been talking about is that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with God's Spirit, and that's what God offers to us. This stands in sharp contrast. He's not filled with the Spirit, but he's filled. uh, It says Satan has filled your heart so that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Peter says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? So what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but you have lied to God. And so you have this sharp contrast between Barnabas, who sells the property and gives it to the church, and I presume Ananias and Sapphira, who maybe watched all that, and they thought, we want to be like Barnabas, right? Everybody loves Barnabas. You know, Barnabas gets a cool nickname. We want to be like that. And yet the problem is the gospel that causes us to to loosen our grip on material things and tighten our group on one another had not apparently sunk that all the way into Ananias and Sapphira. So instead, what you see is a love for possessions and a love, watch this, for the praise of people. And so they still longed for the praise of people and they longed for their possessions. They wanted people to like them, so they come up with this idea. We'll sell our property, we'll keep some back for ourselves, but we'll give some of it and then we'll tell them we gave it all and they come up um, with this lie. And as I said, it's something that Peter says, 
uh, Satan had filled their heart. Now, again, I want to be clear. The problem is not that they kept back some of the money. They could have said, hey, we sold our property. We're going to give this percentage of the money. I think that would have been fine. The problem is, is that they put together this lie, which, of course, always reveals something deeper that's going on in their life. So verse 5 says this. If you've never read this story before, be prepared. It's a, a little strange. It says, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped, him up, his, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. I think of those people as like the, the first church interns, right? The people that you know, have to do what nobody else wants to do. So they come in, wrap him up, take him out, bury him. About three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? He gives her the chance. Yes, she says, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at the feet, at his feet and died. The interns come in, grab her up, finding her dead, carry her out, bury her beside her husband and great Fear seized the whole church and all who heard about those events, to which I say, no duh, right? Because if people are starting to drop dead, some fear is going to um, seize them. And so I was thinking about it. I-, I thought this would be a good time to invite the ushers forward to take an offering. Does seem, anyone else feeling that? No, no, no. Really, no, the point is not the amount that they gave. The point is the way that they conspired and they lied about it and uh, so pushed them away. So um, they're still consumed by their greed. They're still consumed by their praise for, for people and there's a deeper something going on in them. So as you look at this, this seems like kind of a harsh story, certainly a strange story. And so what are some things that we could take away from this? Let me just share a few thoughts about this story that we read, because it's this opposition, this moral failure that could have been allowed to seep in and be a big problem for the church, right? There's this moral failure now among the the Christians. And, And so Manasseh and Ananias and Sapphira die. Um, and here's what you need to know. The deaths of Ananias and Sapphira are what Bible scholars call descriptive, not prescriptive. And the difference between that is they describe, they're descriptive, they describe something that actually happened and something that God caused or allowed to happen, but not necessarily something that we are supposed to see as God always does it this way, right? Um, God's a part of it, but it's that's not how it always works. And there's a lot of things like that in the Bible that describe a biblical truth, but it's not necessarily prescribed that it always happens that way. In fact, if you think about it, if every time someone lied in church or was hypocritical in church, um, if they died, we would have a lot smaller congregation, right? <laughs> and you'd be looking for a new pastor, by the way, because that's not how it works. So, uh, so this is a descriptive, and it speaks to something that we should learn from this, but it's not necessarily God saying, I'm always going to strike people dead like that. That's not how God works. But he wants us to learn from it. Now, what he wants us to learn are some kind of unpopular things, but take a look at this. Three things that I think we can learn from this. The first one is this, is you cannot hide from God. You cannot hide from God, right? You can 
you know, dress up and look a certain way. You can put on a certain appearance. You can put on a certain air. You can fool people. You can hide from people. You cannot hide from God. I cannot hide from God. The scripture teaches it like this. He says, people or man looks at outward appearances, right? That's all we can see. But God, he doesn't stop at the outward appearance. He looks at our heart. And that should be both comforting that he sees the real us, but also really challenging because he sees the real me. In fact, I, I, I think one of the great challenges of my Christian life has been coming to grips with this idea. The scripture teaches that what's done in private will be shouted from the rooftops. And so it's really easy to try to win the approval for people and put something on that I've got it all together, but you cannot hide from God. God loves you and he sees you. Second thing we see is this, is that sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. We see this in this passage. It has great consequences for Ananias and Sapphira. Now, we tend to think, well, you know, I know, I know sin's bad, but God's going to forgive my sin, and, you know, everybody else is doing it, and maybe my sin's not even as bad as that person's, and, you know, nobody seems to drop dead anymore on the spot, and so sin is just not that big of a deal. That is not the way that God looks at sin. God's paid the penalty for our sin. We are forgiven for our sin. But sin is still a very big deal because it keeps us separated from him. God's created us to be in fellowship with him, but we allow these things to, to, to keep us apart from God and distant from him. Sin allows us to have broken relationships with one another, right? Because of our pride, because of our jealousy, because of our anger, right? And so relationships with people aren't the way they should be. Even our relationship with our with ourself is not right because I struggle with whatever it is, some insecurity or, or some secret sin or whatever it is. Uh, and, and you just need to know that God sees those things and his heart breaks. Sin is a big deal to God and it's meant to be a good big deal to us. That's why he invites us to be a new creation. That's why he says, put off the old life. That's why he says, Put to death your old life and put on a new life because the new life that I have for you is an abundant life and I want you to walk in all that I've created you for. And it happens when we move past those sins. Third thing we see is that the fear of the Lord is meant to be a defining mark of the church. The fear of the Lord is meant to be a defining mark. So this happens and and the response is everybody is filled with fear of the Lord. Now, fear of the Lord is not fear in the way that it's going to keep them away from God, but fear in the Lord in the sense that it's, um, it causes a reverence, it causes an awe, a humility that says, God is great and I want to know more of him. And the fear of the Lord, that reverence and that awe of God, that sacredness of God is meant to be a part of what we're about, right? When we gather together to worship, man, we're not, it's not karaoke show. It's us coming before the holy God. And so the fear of the Lord is meant to be something that defines the church. So what is the takeaway from this? Because we're going to face opposition that comes in the form of of sin and moral failure in our life. The answer to this uh, for the early church and for us is this. Our sin has to consistently, regularly be dealt with and not left to linger. If we just say it's no big deal and we kind of leave that stuff, it, it takes root It grows, it festers, it gets harder and harder to get rid of. 
And so we see that God helps us to overcome that opposition by helping us to overcome that sin and just dealing honest with it and getting it away. So that's the first opposition that they face. They face this challenge from right within the church. Second opposition that comes their way is actually from outside of the church, specifically through persecution and threats right? Um, so the story goes that as the church expands, even after this event, the church just continues to grow, and the religious leaders continue to be upset with this. They're very angry. They're threatened by it, and so they start to push back, specifically in the form of persecution. Now, we're actually going to not spend a ton of time on this today, because we're going to actually look at it a little more in depth um, next week with the life of Stephen, but let's just see some of this opposition that the the devil brings to the the church. So verse uh, 17 of Acts chapter 5 says this, then the high priest and all uh, all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy and they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the door of the jail and brought them out. It said, go stand in the temple courts, the angel said, and tell the people all about this new life. What a beautiful thing for the angel to say. Go tell those people about your new life. And at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach the people there. And so how classic is that? The authorities uh, put him in jail, but God, you know, opens up the gate, sends an angel, and he says, I want you to go and just keep preaching in the temple courts. And so that's what they do. The religious leaders are so upset that this time they say we're bringing in the, the whole Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of the, the, the top 70 or so officials who were maybe a little like a Supreme Court kind of thing, like the final authority on this stuff. And so verse 27 says this, the apostles were brought in and they were made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. And back and forth, this little exchange goes between the apostles and the Christians and the religious authorities. They say, quit talking about Jesus. They say, we can't quit talking about Jesus. And they do it again and back and forth. They throw him into jail. They let him out. Back and forth, they go. They're not sure what's going to happen until finally a guy in the Sanhedrin who's very wise, a guy by the name of Gamaliel, speaks up and he says this. He says, hey, We all know that over the last many years that there have been a number of Messiah figures that have have risen up. Jesus was not the first person to claim that he was Messiah. He said, but if, if this is really from God, all these Jesus followers is from God, there's nothing that we could do to stop it anyways. But if it's not from God, it's like all these other ones, it's just gonna die out. So let's just let it run its course and see what happens. By the way, here we are, 2,000 years later, with believers numbering as many as 2 billion people 
all around the globe, on every continent, in almost every language that you can imagine worshiping Jesus on a day like this. Gamaliel's logic was true. If it's from God, there was nothing that they could do to stop it, and it continued to grow. Well, they couldn't stop it, but they weren't happy about it, so they said, well, let's at least have the apostles flogged, and so they they beat them, and we just read over that pretty quickly, but boy, what a terrible torture um, that was, and so how are the Christians going to respond? They've been thrown in jail. They've been threatened. They've been flogged. What are they going to do next? Verse 41 says this, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. How did they overcome that opposition that was bound to come? They overcome it not by cowering in fear, not by backing down. They're not jerks about it, but they just respond with faith and with courage. And as we face opposition, because people are going to push back on followers of Jesus, our response is not to, to back down. We don't have to be mean or, or adversarial or even jerks about it, but with faith and confidence and courage, we can continue to follow Christ even when we face opposition. But that's not the end of the opposition in this little section. One more thing we see is opposition that I said comes from around, but really it also comes from the church, within the church. But there's this kind of division, kind of this distraction, kind of this negativity that starts to work its way into the church. And this is a new thing because we keep seeing these beautiful pictures of the church. But when you get uh, to the beginning of, of chapter six, it says this, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. So you've got two factions there because the, the Hellenistic Jews said their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. And so in this time, there are uh, two branches of Judaism. And one of the things that we're going to see here is as you're faced with this first potential for division, there's actually kind of a racial component to it, uh, to it. Because in these two uh, forms or branches of Judaism, there is the Hebraic Jews that we're probably most uh, familiar with. They were around Jerusalem and, and probably in Israel, but there were also many Jews that lived scattered around the, the Roman Empire. These were called Hellenistic Jews because they probably didn't speak Hebrew as their first language anymore. They spoke Greek, and they even adopted some of the Greek habits, and that, so they called them Hellenists, which is the, a word for, for Greek speakers. And, and so you've got these Greek Greek-speaking Jews and these Hebrew-speaking Jews, and they start to have division among them. And the accusation is this, hey, you Hebraic Jews are not taking care of our widows. And talk about something that is ripe for a good old-fashioned church fight, because as I said, it's rooted in some sort of racial division. There's also money involved in it because they're like, hey, you know, you guys are getting all this money. People are selling their fields, but you're still not taking care of our widows. Um, there's also a family component to it. Like, are you trying to say our widows aren't as important as your widows? And so all of those deep emotional things, this literally could have blown the church up as they face this first potential for division. And um, on top of that, the complaint comes to the apostles. And the apostles were the leaders of the church who had a real specific 
specific job, and their job was to, to preach and teach and to be kind of the spiritual leaders of this. And now they're saying, hey, you guys might have to leave those responsibilities so that you can start making sure that the widows get taken care of. So it's a real food fight that they have on their hands. Um, as a pastor who knows how touchy these situations can be, I'm just fascinated by the way they deal with it, and it's just awesome. This is what it says. So with this potential for division and distraction, the 12 gathered all the disciples together. They met together, and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They also chose Philip, Procurius, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of the God continued to spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith." And so I love this response, and in this, as we just kind of wrap up here real quick, is um, some things that we could still do, because we still face potential for hurt feelings, for grumbling and complaining, for division, for hurt feelings, for conflict, all those kind of things. And let's be honest, as horrible as persecution is, as difficult as moral failure can be on a church community... There's nothing that has done more damage to the cause of Christ than infighting among Christians that we see on this list. So how do they handle it? They do some things really wise. I just want to go over them real quick as we wrap up. The first thing they do is they continue to keep a very clear focus uh, rather than be distracted. So they they keep a clear focus on the heart of the mission. And, And this is what I mean by that. The problem is not that the widows shouldn't be fed, right? That the widows needed to be taken care of. That was actually a part of the gospel. The problem was the apostles were being pulled away from their most important task to take care of this other, uh, a task. And there are always going to be good things in life that compete against the best things in life, right? Just this week, I, I, I dealt with this. There were good things, valuable things that I felt like I wanted to do, I needed to do, that I had to choose. I can't do those because I need to be about the most important thing. And there's all kinds of things that will pull us away, distract us from really the most important thing, which is following after Christ and, and those uh, sort of things. And, and as a church, this is a big part of what we are about. One of the things that we're trying to do here at First Baptist Church is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus Christ. And this will be hard because sometimes that means we don't talk about everything or we don't deal with everything. It can even be frustrating at times. And it's not that those things aren't important, but our goal and our mission is clear. Our mission is clear to share the gospel, to make mature and mobilize disciples of Jesus Christ. And when we allow ourselves to get pulled away from those things, we're going to miss out. It can bring distraction and even division. Second thing that we do, and I love this, is the church deals with what could have been potential division with what I'm 
I'm calling godly progress. What I mean by that is they come up with a new idea. They come up with a new solution. They get some new people. They put something new into place. They get these guys to, to take care of waiting on the tables. And it worked. This is actually the first deacon board that we see in uh, the scriptures. And one of the greatest hindrances of growth uh, to a, a growth and, and mission in a church is an idea that says we can't do that because we've never done it that way before. They would have just piled more on the apostles to keep doing it. But no, they said we need something new. So they had godly progress. They prayed about it. They worked together. They started doing something new and it worked. And then finally, they deal with the potential division with a heart of welcome and expansion. What do I mean by that? It says that they appointed seven new leaders in the church. And I don't know if you noticed this, but all seven of the names are Greek names. So they start to expand the leadership. They say it's not just about us, but God is starting to do something new. And so we need to not push people away, but we need to invite people in. And we see seven uh, new Greek-speaking Jews who are now the next leaders of group. And for the first time, there's a diverse group of people that are welcomed into leadership. And what happens? Once again, the Word of God continues to spread. And so I know we've covered a lot of ground today, but do you see the pattern When God's at work, opposition is going to come. It's true back then, it's true today, and it's true in your life. And so we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, clear on following after Jesus, and see how we stand up against that opposition so that we can continue to see uh, the good things that we see here. All right, let's pray together. God, I thank you so much uh, for this wonderful section in the book of Acts. There's a lot of stuff there, Lord, but a lot of stuff that we can really learn from. And so I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters as we face opposition in all kinds of forms, some that's from without, from persecution or people looking down on us or feeling like outsiders, some that comes right from within us. God, our own sin in our life is an opposition to what you want to do and, and even potential for division and backbiting. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be focused on you and that like in the book of Acts, we would see your power poured out and your church grow in advance. So bless and lead each person here today. Help us, Lord, um, to follow you with all that we've got. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.